me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 is where we will be this morning as we get our second week in a row in this same uh, section in Colossians. I called last week the Everest in the mountain range of God's Word. Someone asked me if I really wanted to blow the Everest image on, on this passage, and I said, yeah, I think it fits. Uh, I'm not sure where else I'd put it. Um, this one's pretty up there. At least makes the top five, top ten great descriptions of worship and praise in God's word that elicits glory within us to the Lord. Hear God's word. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be Preeminent, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This sends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of God may it stand forever. Amen. Well, last week we dove into uh, this passage, and I, I, I noted last week that I felt like and saw four particular themes. And what this passage is seeking to articulate to us is very clearly in the verbiage of the passage is Christ is preeminence. Or in a, the worded, wording that we are more familiar with in our language, Christ is more supreme. He is supreme above everything in the world. And I want to show, beginning last week, four ways in which Christ is shown to be supreme in this passage. We dealt with two of them last week. And we get two of them this week. First thing we saw is that Christ is supreme because he is divine. He is God. It articulates it in a number of ways. He is not a created being. He is above creation. He is the firstborn, meaning that he is first in rank and priority and supremacy in this world. All things flow from him. All things are for him. So we also saw that not only is he God, but also he is the creator of all things. He is supreme as the creator of all things. He is over all powers and authority, every domain, all dominion and dynasty. Everything is created for him and for his glory. That's why we were made and why we live in this world. That is our purpose. And everything is sustained by him. Everything is held together 
by the power of his, his hand, by his finger. We come to the second, or the third and the fourth, excuse me, of the ways in which this passage shows how Christ is supreme. Let's jump right into it. Our first point, or the third overall within these two sermons, is this, is that Christ is supreme over redeemed creation. Not only is he supreme over creation as it was originally made, over all things, he is supreme over the recreation, over the new creation. And in that, what that means is he is both the authority of this new creation and he is the source of it. It says that there, it describes it, is that Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. And what that means, first and foremost, is the head of the church, that Jesus is the authority over the church. Jesus is, has authority over all of redemption, all of the new creation. The story of the scriptures is that God made this world beautiful and good, but we distorted it and we broke it. But he didn't leave us to our brokenness, but he entered into this world, and he is beginning the process of new creation, of new redemption, of recreating this world that was once broken, and he is doing so through the church. That we are the main, we are the vessel and the agency through which God's kingdom comes to bear and through which God's new creation is made manifest and visible in this world. And as the head of that church, Jesus is in charge. Ephesians 1 verses 22 and 23 says this, And he put all things under his feet, his being Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is in charge of the church. The Pope is not our head. I am not the head of this church. The church is not a democracy where majority rules. Christ is the king. It is a monarchy, and what he says goes. This is an important principle. If we are actually, if the church is actually to be a recreating, redeeming force in this world, is that we must follow the head, the king. We lose our power when we follow something else. See, what has become typical is everyone, often in the church, we will agree with this principle that Christ is king, but in practice, it is something other. Talk about this in our discovery class a couple weeks ago with those who were looking at membership. And I, 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 I cited a cartoon, which my dad showed me as a kid, which I'm sure he still uses. But this cartoon has this particular picture. It's a church meeting. Don't church, church meetings great. And here's the line underneath the cartoon. It says, Our bylaws specifically state that the will of God cannot be overturned except with a two-thirds majority vote. <laughs> this is the attitude many of us have about Christ's kingship over his church. We pretty much function like politicians following the polls. Well, that's what they want, so that's what we'll give them. That's not how it works. In the, many churches, a simple majority will, will do above a two-thirds majority. A.W. Tozer, in his last work before his death, the final article that he wrote, wrote, said this in an article called The Waning Authority of Christ in the Church. And in this article, Tozer argued that even the most Bible-believing churches, the places of Jesus, that Jesus holds a place in these churches that's more to like the king or queen of England. It's merely kind of a, an office you hold off to the side but have no real power anymore. 
He, we, we bring them out for our big parades and for our nice holidays, but that's a really all we need of him. The church loses its power and its command in this world. It's called to be recreative when we follow some other authority besides Christ Jesus. And therefore, the commitment of this church, and this should be the commitment of every church, is that Christ is king. That's the first thing we see. Christ, he is the supreme because he's the head of the church, the head over the new creation, but also as part of that, as the head of the new creation, of the redeemed creation, it says that Christ, he also, he's as the head of the church, he is the source of the church. He is the source of the church. Where do we come from? Colossians 2, 19, later on in the same book, Paul says this, that we should hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If the church is going to grow in power and authority and holiness in this world, that it must find its nourishment from Christ and Christ alone. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Church, if we want to grow... Christ must be the head. He must be the source of all spiritual life in this place. It cannot be flashy programs. It cannot be certain types of music. It cannot be certain outlines to the preaching. It must be Christ and Christ alone that is our source. And so he is the head of the body. Now, if Christ is the head of the church, if he is the authority, if where he leads, the rest of the body goes, which I hope your body is like that, right? My 11-month-year-old is, is, is starting to learn how to stand. In a few months, he's going to learn how to walk. And how's he going to learn how to walk? His massive head is going to tilt forwards. <laughs> and the whole body's going to go unless his feet start to move. Where the head goes, the body goes. And he is the source. There is no life apart for him. This, which means this, and this is an important principle, understanding the head and the body, this image of the church. What is true for the head is true for the rest of the body. If Christ is the head of the church and we are the body, then what is true for him is true for us, which has great implications when we come to the next phrase, which is this. Christ is supreme over a redeemed creation because he is the firstborn among the dead. Paul continues by describing Jesus as the firstborn among the dead, again, repeating this idea of firstborn. That is to say that he is the beginning, just as he is the beginning and founder of humanity, he is the beginning and founder of new humanity, a new people. Why? Because he is the first to defeat death and to move through death and to rise again. And when God the Father raised Christ from the death, from the dead, and glorified and exalted him to the right hand of his majesty, he became the first fruits of the resurrection. The resurrection which all of us who are in Christ Jesus will also get. What is true for the head is true for the body. Your mortality is sucked up into the life of Jesus. And this answer is one of life's most pivotal questions. The question that if we don't answer this one, it doesn't matter what the answers are to all the other questions about what our purpose is and stuff like that. The question is this, is there a way around death or is there life after death? Michael Green, who's a commentator, in order to draw this out, gave this analogy. He tells this story about how in the Middle Ages, 
one of the great mysteries and the great debates uh, amongst the particularly Western European countries was, is there a way to get to the Orient around the Horn of Africa? Everyone who had tried had died. No one came back, pretty much. Or they would get close and be like, ah, I don't think so. We're going to go back home. So much so that that horn around the coast of Africa was called the Cape of Storms. But one day, a man named Vasco da Gama finally made it around, found his way a lot quicker to the Orient, and was able to wake it back. And as soon as he made it back to Lisbon, once and for all, the great question of, is there a way around the Horn of Africa? Is there a way to get to the Orient this way? That was answered. And Green goes on to say, this is how it is with Christ. He is the firstborn from the dead. And so when he answers the question, is there a way through death? And the answer ever since Christ Jesus arose from the grave on that Easter morning is, yes, there is a way. Jesus took the voyage around death, or should I say through death. He walked into the valley of shadow of death, and he came out in resurrection power. There was no light, but he came out through it, and therefore he can take us and walk us through it as well and bring us to new life on the other side. Revelation 1, 12 through 18 gives us a graphic depiction of what this looks like. Then I turned. Remember, this is John having a vision Then I turned and saw the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven gold lampstands in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. These descriptions of light are important because he's going to take us through death. Refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters in his right hand. He held seven stars from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and therefore I have the keys to death and Hades. He says, I will take your hand and I will walk you through. Christ is the firstborn. It gives power to the church. It brings about the recreation because that thing which destroyed creation is no longer. It is now simply the means into new life. And so he is supreme over all creation, over all recreation, over redemption. So he is supreme because he's God. He's supreme over creation. He's supreme over recreation. Here's what I want to say. Wouldn't you say that Jesus is enough? If If he is God, if he is the divine one made man, if he is the one who created all things, if he is the one who redeems all things, wouldn't you say he is enough? This is the point of Colossians, remember? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And the reason why you need nothing else is because Jesus is everything that you need. And he has proven it. But but Paul gives one more. All three of these points are layered together to get to Paul's final point, which is this. Jesus is the supreme and sufficient reconciler. Because he is God... 
Because he is man, because he is the one who formed all creation, and now he is the redeemer of all creation, it means he is the one who is sufficient to reconcile us to God. This is the great problem of humanity, was we are separated from God. And we need to be reconciled, that is to be made right with him. Reconciliation is the connecting of two previously opposed parties. It is the, the reckoning of two previously opposed parties and bringing them to peace. And what we find in verses 18 or verses 19 through 23 is a primer on reconciliation. I'm going to walk through, I'm going to give you four points on reconciliation this morning that are seen in Colossians 1. All getting to the point that Christ is the supreme and sufficient reconciler. The first that we see, though, is that we need our need for reconciliation. This is in verse 21, where it outlines our problems. And you were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Three words to describe who we were without Christ. First, alienated, simply meaning that we were separated from God. We were isolated from him. We did not belong. Alienated in the Greek word literally means that you've been transferred to another owner. Jesus calls the Pharisees children of the devil. The fullest description of what it means to be transferred to another owner. Who is the one who is the prince of the power of the air of this world? Who is, functions as the king of this world so often? It's the devil. And so Christ has come to crush his rule. We all come into this world relationally estranged and separated from God. We are not simply indifferent towards God. The scriptures say we come out hating him. And therefore, we are children of wrath. That's the first thing, and that's a significant problem, wouldn't you say? But even worse, or moving on with that, what makes the matters worse is that we're hostile in our thinking. You see, our fallenness and our separation from God has not has affected the way, even the way we very think. The very desires of our hearts and the very way in which we think about this world, the way in which we think about God. We are geared from the moment we come into this world to resist the truth of God and to hear his truth, but then to distort it in our minds. So our relationship with God is characterized not only as one of estrangement, but also as one of distorted thinking, so that we, when, even when we hear the truth of the gospel, we twist it in our own minds. The third thing we see, though, is also... Not only alienated, not only hostile in our thinking, but then we do evil deeds. As a man thinketh, so he is, right? Out of our minds do we find our lives being lived. And so if your thinking is twisted and disjointed and crooked as a result of sin, so also will that lead to a life of sin. Thoughts and actions are cyclical. They feed one another. When you think evil thoughts, you do evil thoughts. And as you do evil thoughts, you think evil thoughts. The word evil, what I want you to see here, the word evil in this passage is the word pornes. Pornes. What does that remind you of? Pornography is where we get, is, that's the root word of pornography. The evil that results of the thoughts of our minds is pornographic. What it's giving there is, in this word evil is that at the heart of our evil deeds are pornographic thoughts. And by that, what that means is it's distorted thoughts. And it leads to a life that is distorted and twisted. You want to know how men become serial rapists? They look, look back at their story. It begins with finding pornography in a trash can. 
And from a young age, it begins to twist them. And then their life gets twisted, and they do horrific things. In the same way, what this passage is saying is all evil begins with the mind, and then it plays out in your life. These are big problems. We need reconciliation. A pastor went to the hospital room to see a man who was dying. And he asked the man, have you made peace with God? And the man's response was, I didn't know we were quarreling. But that's simply not true, is it? We have quarreled with God. All of humanity, in fact, we have divorced him. We shoved him away, and it was personal. We say, we want you to have nothing to do with us. You're the creator, but we want nothing to do with you as the creator of our lives. We declared our independence, and so God said, okay, let's see how it goes when you have it your way. And our divorce from God, if you look at this world, has been an ugly one, has it not? Gwyneth Paltrow, when she was getting divorced, described, said, was very angry when a, a reporter described her separation from her husband as a divorce and wanting to clean it up, she said, no, 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 it's not a divorce, it's a conscious uncoupling. That is so clean and sweet, isn't it? Conscious uncoupling. We just broke up. But divorce is messy, and especially when you divorce yourself from the God of the universe, it gets really messy. And we have pained ourselves and all of creation with it because we have separated ourselves from God. We have run from him, and yet and yet, he is the only one that we need. He's the one we so desperately, at the heart of our hearts, long for. The philosopher says, right, we have a God-shaped vacuum in our heart that only God can satisfy, and we try to fill it with all sorts of other things. But nothing hurts more than being separated from the one you most need and the one in which you were most designed to love and to experience their love. Ernest Hemingway tells a story about this need to be reconciled. And the longing in the human heart tells the story of a father who put an ad in the Madrid newspaper one day. And the ad went this way. Paco, meet outside the Hotel Montana this Monday at noon. And then the advertisement ends this way. All is forgiven. The man showed up to the hotel that day and there were 800 Pacos waiting. We have a longing to be reconciled, to be forgiven, to be reconciled to the one that we love. This is what hell is, right? Alienation from the Father. So how is reconciliation possible? Someone must take the initiative in reconciliation and peacemaking. And here's the difference between Christianity and all other religions. All other religions would say that you must take the initiative. Every other religion says that you've got to change your life, you've got to live better, you've got to clean up your act, and then you can be reconciled. But the gospel says that there was a spouse who was cheated on, but he took the initiative. So we've seen the need, but now we also see in the spouse, this perfect savior, the means of reconciliation. Verse 20, and then jump down to verse 22, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. What is the means by which we are made right with God? Through our true lover. The one who came to lay his life down. To take on flesh to bring us home. 
Soren Kierkegaard tells the king, tells a, very, a short story that's become famous in the philosophical world, for, probably for its brevity, but for its great description of this love of, of God and the way he took on incarnation. Here's how the story goes. Suppose that there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all of his opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden who lived in a poor village in his kingdom. How could he declare his love for her? And in an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist this king. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life that she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could, she, how could he know for sure that, he, that she loved him? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort, waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want, to, want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover. The king... Convinced he could not simply elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend to her. Clothed as a beggar, he approached her cottage with a worn cloak fluttering loosely about him. But this was no mere disguise. This was the king's new identity. He had renounced his throne to declare his love, renounced his throne, and to win her love. The gap between the king and that woman was insurmountable. In fact, the king's power and might was one of the very reasons why they couldn't be together. We cannot be reconciled to God because he is perfect and we are imperfect. So he clothed himself in our humanity and came as a beggar to draw us to himself, to win our hand. This is the gospel. That the one who is clothed from all of eternity in a garment of light has entered into our, in our darkness and taken on the robe of mockery. The incarnation, the life and death of Jesus answers once and for all this question. What is God's heart towards me? And it's this, that he would cross the greatest chasm to make you his once again, to reconcile you into relationship. This is what Paul says in Romans 5. Look, he says there is a cross, and this cross is the demonstration of God's heart of love to us. At the point of our deepest betrayal, he has made peace with us. When we were running from him and we were farthest from home, we had gotten lost in the woods, he came and found us and made us his once again. The means of our reconciliation is through Christ and Christ alone. I want you to see also, this is the third thing about reconciliation, is also the scope of it. I'm just going to say this very briefly for the sake of time. It says there that it doesn't just simply mean that we have been redeemed, each of us individually. What does it say? All things. God reconciles all things to himself. This is not limited to simply you and me. This is all creation. Romans 8 talks about this in verses 20 to 23, where it says creation groans and longs. And so the scope of God's reconciliation in this world is everything. It's the world. For God so loved the world. The cross is going to solve the problem of tsunamis and black holes 
And in the end, what's the image we get in Revelation? Is that the lion and the lamb will lay down with one another. All animosity in this world, all systems of injustice will be made an end. Lions and lambs. Caucasians and African Americans will lay down next to each other and worship the king. Everything in this world would be made right. We see that this rightness, this reconciliation that God has brought in our life, not only is it to bring about the means of our reconciliation through the cross, it's not only is it through all things, but there are some results of it. Some personal results, some individual results, some things that happen in the life of those who are reconciled. So we see forth that the results of reconciliation, verse 22. And what are those? The second part of verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. I've used the image of a lover who's been cheated on who came to reconcile himself. And this is actually the continued pattern we see in the scriptures in the New Testament. Ephesians 5 uses the same exact language where it talks about a husband who loves his wife. And why does he love her? Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. A number of months back, Jim Wills said something, and he said it so, so directly and beautifully, it made for a palpable and, and, and ver, visible or v, verbal ah in the room. That what God is doing with each one of us is at the end of all things that we will be presented to God as a gift to himself in all of our beauty. This is what God is doing in your life. That is a beautiful vision for your life. That in the midst of the struggle, that one day you will be blameless and perfect in his sight for all time. And you will be presented in all of your glory to God as a means of worship to him. The language of Colossians and the language of Ephesians 5 shows that each of us are going to be presented in this way. And not simply that we will look better than other human beings. In the eye, it's not simply that God wants to make you holy and blameless in the eyes of the people around you. That's easy but holy and blameless in his sight, the one who is perfect in this world, the one who cannot lay his eyes on anything that is blemished. You see, this is one of the theme lines that runs throughout scriptures, is that if you're unclean, if even if you have a physical blemish, that you cannot come in God's sight. We read in Leviticus, in Leviticus 1, chapter 1 through verses 6, chapter 16, this is usually where your reading through the Bible every year gets derailed around this point. You get to Leviticus 1 through 16, and it gives all these laws for presenting yourself before God in the temple. And it says that we cannot present ourselves until we have had our sins covered by sacrifices. But even those sacrifices have to come unblemished. The animals can't have weird eyes and cuts on their feet. The animal, the sacrifice, has to be perfect. You couldn't touch certain things. You couldn't wash with certain objects or even dry off with certain objects. You couldn't have a cut. You couldn't have any deformity, warts or rashes or scars. Women had to purify themselves after childbirth. That doesn't sound fair, does it? Even after menstruation, they couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't have touched a dead animal. You had to tie your hair up in God's sight. If you let your hair down before the Lord, it says in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 6, that you would die. 
And we think it's unfair that he says that we should stone children that disobey. There are far more unfair things in the Old Testament. The point of all of those passages of Leviticus and all of these rules is to say you have a perfectly holy God and you cannot come, come close to living up to him. And what you deserve, every, even the smallest disrespect of your parents deserves his wrath. You cannot come in his sight with the smallest blemish. Anything that falls short of who God originally made us to be does not deserve to be in his sight. And the point is that, the question is that you would read Leviticus 1 through 16 and go, who could enter? Exactly. No one could enter but one. But one. That we, through Christ Jesus, are made blameless and clean. We are washed in the blood of the Lamb so that he will present us for all of eternity before God as glorious in his sight. This is why he has come. Now, that's really good news. But I also want you to see here within this, in verse 23, that there's a warning. There's a warning for us. Verse 23 says this, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. If is a problematic word. The word if there appears to put the condition, a condition upon us being presented blameless and holy before God. And it seems to put the condition upon our ability to remain in the faith. Does this mean that while Jesus starts our reconciliation, we must finish it? Can we lose our reconciliation with God? Can one day we be seen as right before God and the next day not right? Can we, by our faithlessness, not be presented by before God as blameless and holy at the end of all things? Now, in order to answer that, I want you to see a couple principles before I get that to that. Let me, let me give you a principle for understanding and doing theology in all of Scripture. And it's this, that Scripture interprets Scripture, not your objections to Scripture. It is not a whiny, wimpy, that's not fair, God. It is you understand difficult passages in Scripture by looking at other passages of Scripture that are abundantly clear. And so two principles that I think draw out in all of Scripture through that. It's this. All true Christians will keep believing and repenting. They will be kept. They cannot be lost. And they will not fall away. This is often what people call the doctrine of perseverance or the doctrine of preservation. John 10 28 through 29, I will give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Which means you can't snatch yourself out of the Father's hand. Romans 8, those he justifies, he will also glorify. So if you're justified, you get glorified. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 25. Now may God, the God of peace himself, sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Who's going to bring you home? You? No, he will. He will bring you home. Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. These are abundantly clear. And therefore, we have to then understand it in light of Colossians 1, 23 here. 
We have to synthesize these things together. So let me also give you the second principle that comes out as a study of all of Scripture, which is this. Because true Christians will keep believing, and because there is a genuine responsibility to keep believing, the Scripture warns professing Christians to keep believing. Let me walk through this. If a person grows unrepentant, they prove that they never truly had repentance. That if a person walks away from the faith, they show that they never truly had faith. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us. Talking about those who left the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, then no doubt they would have stayed with us. If you walk away from the Lord and walk away from the faith, it is the proof that you never had true faith that reconciles you anyways. But in here, we also see an explicit warning. And what is that warning? It's simply this, that if you have no continuation of the faith in your life, a pursuit of holiness and blamelessness, a stable and steadfastness in your faith, then there is no presentation of you before God at the end of all times as holy and blameless. No continuation, no presentation at the end. Yes, there is conditionality in our perseverance. But, and this is key, the warning of the condition is a means by which God preserves our faith. God preserves us in faith and holiness of life by stirring our hearts to avail ourselves of our need of the gospel. He says, I will hold you and cling to you. You will, you will never, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And one of the means by which he does that is to warn you and say, hey, don't walk away. Don't walk away. Stay steadfast and stable. You see, the doctrine of perseverance is not saying that you are secure no matter what you do. But the doctrine of perseverance says that you are secure because God keeps you. And therefore, because God keeps you, you won't slip away. And you won't make a wreck of your faith. But he uses the warning to keep us from making a wreck of our faith. Colossians 1.23 is saying, Christian, listen to this. If you don't persevere by continuing in the faith, then you won't be presented to God. But Christian, take heart knowing that it is God who works in you that which is pleasing in his sight, Hebrews 13.21. And be encouraged by the assurance of Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Whenever you hear a conditionality text like this, and there are a lot of them, there ought to be, where God says you will persevere if you do blank. Always think of the old prayer of St. Augustine who said this, Lord, command with thy wills and grant without commands. God, you can make a commandment, but then you've got to give me the strength to do it. So by means of the warning implicit in the condition, God preserves our faith and the pursuit of holiness in our life by stirring our hearts to avail us of his sustaining grace. But in the warning to remain stable and steadfast, it doesn't say the means of our perseverance is some new understanding about the Christian faith. The means of your perseverance is not a special great worship experience that if you'll just go to passion conferences, you will be preserved. That if you'll just speak in tongues, then you'll, you'll stay with the Lord. That if you'll just understand these deep, big, huge theological words, that's not what we are to run to. 
What does it say? Verse 23, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of what? The gospel. This is why it is sad, Tim Keller says it, the gospel is not the ABCs to the Christian life, it is the A to Z of the Christian life. The word continue means to stay put. You continue the, re- the way in which you are stable and steadfast. And when you, are, when you see the warnings and you go, I have, been, I have not been stable and steadfast. Oh, Lord, help me. Lord, am I really going to be preserved to the end? What you should do then is say, okay, go back to the gospel. Every day, go back to the hope of the gospel, the promises there, the assurances there. Why go back to the gospel, though? And this is the point of the whole text. Two weeks, we finally get to it. 40 minutes in today. Why go back to the gospel? Because the gospel reveals the supreme sufficiency of Christ Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You don't need other Christian experiences. You don't need to speak in tongues. You don't need the deep theology books. You need Jesus. That's the point of this text. And you need him tomorrow morning, and you need him tomorrow afternoon, and you need him tomorrow night. I love, I think it's Fernando Ortega. I think it's an old hymn, but Fernando Ortega does it beautifully. Oh, Lord, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. See, if you have undervalued the view of Christ's sufficiency, then you will overvalue your own sufficiency, or you will run to something else to be the sufficiency. You'll add something to Jesus. Let me give you a couple of thoughts, implications, and applications to close. I want you to see that continuing the faith and not shifting from the hope of the gospel means that we must hear the gospel often. What does it say? Not shifting from the hope of the gospel, and it says that you heard. How do you know the hope of the gospel is that you must hear the gospel daily? So yes, listen to good preaching. Who are you listening to? What are the messages that you're allowing into your life? Who are the people that you're reading? Too often we're reading people who are adding something to Christ Jesus. A second point of application is this, is the description of the Christian life is present, who is presented as blameless and holy in the end is not measured by the spectacular, but by the stable and the steadfast. The very nature of stability is pretty much the opposite of spectacular. The devil, and what we see in the scriptures, is the devil tries to make us think that what we need is something spectacular. This is what he does to Jesus, right? Do something spectacular and they'll worship you. And Eve's temptation, she saw the fruit as beautiful, It was something spectacular. Throughout the scriptures, those who are blown and tossed in their faith left and right are those who are constantly looking for some great experience, something beautiful and showy and spectacular. And so often in our Christian life, we find the steadfastness and stability of of the gospel simply boring. We need something else. This has been the truth within American Christianity for a couple centuries. It's called revivalist theology. Those of you who are over 60 years old or grew up out out in the country, you'll know this. What did you spend your summer nights doing? About twice a week, two weeks out of the year. You go to revival meetings. Why? Because we needed to conjure something up 
to make our Christian lives feel sufficient. Jesus wasn't enough. We got to have a big tent meeting. Now, don't hear me wrong. Lord, would you bring revival in your life and in our nation? Yes. Would God do something spectacular? But what we see in the scriptures is primarily what God wants for us is a slow and steady and stable growth towards him. Now, this revivalist theology, for those of you that are young, it, it, it's, play, it's played out in our Christian faith today as well. Every time I get online to Gospel Coalition or some other blog, what is being promoted is the next big conference. It's the same exact thing. And so what Christians do is they bounce from conference to conference to retreat to retreat, looking for the spectacular when it's actually the sufficiency of Christ is found there in the morning in the dark and wee hours spent with him. College students, you know why your life is so often up and down? And yes, those involved in Christian ministry, we, we do ourselves a disservice. And often, some of it's your age and it's your hormones. And some of it's the, the, the nature of life in the college life, and there's big events going on in your life. But if your life as a Christian is like this, is in college, I had the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. Those highs are wonderful, but those lows are very dangerous. That is not necessarily how your Christian life is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like this. And often what college students have, they come out of a Christian ministry is they will find and they will struggle with those couple years out of college is they're not going to the conferences every two months. And they're not in going to retreats every once in a while. And they don't have the drug of the retreats. And they don't know how to do daily Christian life anymore. And what you end up finding in the first decade is you're just trudging through life as a Christian out of college. Be warned. For those of you who are in the trudging with me, who've got three kids and you get no sleep and you're long, you miss the days when you had the spiritual highs and you're exhausted, understand this, is he is sufficient in those moments. Listen, if you can get to a retreat, go to a retreat. If you can get to a conference, go to a conference. May the spirit of God do something amazing. Would revival fall in this church? But that is not the pattern throughout most of human history. The pattern of the Christian life is slow and steady growth to him, finding daily sufficiency, our bread, on a weekly or monthly basis, however long we, how often we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that you come in and you take and you eat, and you say, my, his grace is sufficient, sufficient for me. What you see finally in close, the greatness of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel, the sufficiency of Christ. For so many of us in the midst of the, the drudgery of life, it becomes our, our, our awe and our wonder becomes threadbare. As one pastor said, where wonder wearies, worship wanes. Would you pray today that worship would be arising you again when you hear the gospel? You've heard it a thousand times. Would you ask to hear it afresh again? And one final thing, I want you to see where Paul ends this morning. It's pretty interesting. Paul starts with these beautiful, lofty things. Christ over creation. Christ is divine, but where does he end? There is a time in Christian history called the killing times. The time in Scotland when believers, known as the covenanters, were being persecuted for their faith because they refused to submit to the tyranny of the king and to the Church of England. And the problem was that in, in, in persecuting these Christians, it was done without any kind of justice. 
And often thugs and soldiers would go out and they would find those who would believe in the things that the covenanters believed in. And they would give them no trial or legal process, but they would simply enter their home and wield justice all on their own. There was a particular guy who was rather infamous for doing this, a guy named Claverhouse. Can you think of a worse villainous name? Claverhouse. And he was eliminating going from place to place like Paul did in the, Old, in the New Testament in Acts. And he was eliminating these covenanters. And one day he apprehended a man named John Brown of Priest Hill. They went to his home and they found treasonable papers, covenanter doctrines being taught in these papers. And they said, you must die for what you believe. Go to your prayers. So Brown kneels down there in front of the soldiers and the thugs, and he prays impassionately for his family. And finally, Claverhouse says, that's enough. Get up off your knees. And he orders his six soldiers to shoot Brown. But they hesitated. They were so moved by the prayer that they heard. And so Claverhouse wheels his, takes his own pistol out and shoots Brown in the head. Not wanting to be left out, all the other soldiers grab their pistols and begin firing so that Brown's body right there in front of his wife and his two small children was scattered all over the ground. Then to add insult to injury, Claverhouse turned to Miss Brown and scoffed and said, What thinkest now of your husband, woman? This was Mrs. Brown's response. She said this, I ever thought much good of him. And now more than ever. The pattern in which Paul argues here is, isn't Jesus great? He created all things. Isn't Jesus great? He is the divine one. Isn't Jesus great? He defeated death. But where he ends with Christ shedding his blood on the cross. Would you be moved by that once again? Could Mrs. Brown help us? Could you look at the cross and say, I ever thought much of him, but now, evermore, I do now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grandeur and the beauty of who you are. What God could make a world, in its fallen state, we see the beauty of you emanating and popping out everywhere. What God would take on human flesh to restore us to himself. You are powerful over death. You are wondrous. But gracious God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of Christ Jesus crucified. The act that has reconciled us once and for all before you. Would those who have heard this message a thousand times over be struck by the beauty of it once again. May our hearts not wane in wonder and lift our eyes up in worship. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.